Let's pray together. Well, our Father, we, we think of the, for, the chorus which goes, open our eyes, Lord, we want to see Jesus. So we pray now. That is our prayer. In Scripture, your Holy Spirit has laid out a brilliant portrait of our Lord, vibrant and vital and living. And here in this section we're studying today, we have a particularly dear, moving, stirring view of the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. But even such a view is, would be lost on dull hearts and half-closed eyes. So, our God, we pray, stir us, grip us, enlighten us, teach us, move us to greater love, gratitude, trust, devotion, joy, hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for our introduction, we'll just dig right into the section in verse 29 which depicts Jesus and his apostles heading toward Jerusalem. Now, I remind you that this section of the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 19 through 23, narrate a series of incidents in which the king repeatedly rocks the world. First, we saw in chapter 19, the first 28 verses, which we just finished, uh, Jesus repeatedly rocks his own disciples In this next section that we're opening up now, the king will rock Jerusalem, the capital city. And with this verse, we head in the final neck of the journey to Jerusalem. So we have him nearing his city in verses 29 through 34. This was explained to us a bit earlier in the chapter. If you have your Bibles open, just cast your eyes up to verse 17 in chapter 20. And as Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, Matthew says, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. This is what they're doing. This is what is in Jesus' mind. Now, Jericho then, here we see in verse 29, they're going out from Jericho. What's the significance? This is the last stop before the ascent to Jerusalem. When pilgrims are on the way to Jerusalem, as they were at this time, pilgrims heading to Jerusalem for the Passover, uh, Jericho was their last stop. Uh, And then they would begin an eight or nine hour climb. Starting at Jericho, which is about 720 feet below sea level, ending up in Jerusalem, which is about 2,450 feet above sea level. So that is around a 3,750-foot climb in the space of around 15 miles. Jericho's the last stop, and here they are. Matthew brackets this section. You can see it on the translation I've made for you there. If you just look at the last, the first and last verses, you'll see he's given us an inclusio, which is really very helpful in understanding what he wants us to learn. Verse 29 And while they were going out from Jericho, a great crowd followed him. Then look at the last verse. Jesus heals the blind men, and immediately they saw again, and they followed him. Verse 29, a great crowd follows him. Verse 34, two healed blind men follow him. There's actually quite a lesson in that. The crowd in verse 29 would be a happy crowd hopefully generous to people sitting on the sideline begging, like a Christmas parade, kind of. That's verse 29. And verse 34, 
we have these two who, as the crowd passed by, were sitting on the sideline, but their eyes have been opened and they follow Jesus. And, and through their eyes, hopefully our eyes can be opened that we might see Jesus better and follow him better ourselves. So let's continue on then. Roman numeral one, they will see him better indeed, and we will see him better, but it will be through the eyes of two sightless men, verses 30 and 31. And I'd note three things about them for you. First, they are blind. This is very important to note. And look, Matthew says, two blind men. Look. Let's consider their condition. We'll see that they are hopeless and they are helpless. They're hopeless. Matthew says, look. They can't look. They can't look at Jesus. They couldn't look at us. But he wants us to look at them because we will learn from them. Look, he says. And this is indeed the last healing, the last public healing that Matthew will detail. He'll refer to one later, but he only narrates this one. So, as the last healing, let us look and learn at what he would teach us through this. As one, uh, their, their condition then as, as blind men, they were hopeless. Now today, uh, blindness is still often hopeless. There are some surgeries that can correct some blindness. blindness. There are um, glasses that can greatly help. I'm sure you'd love as I do to see the, the uh, little clips of children receiving glasses or helps that help them see for the first time their mother's face and how joyous they are. And there are salves that can help certain conditions, but none of that was available at this time. And the salves that were available were of very limited use. So you see the helplessness of the situation, remembering the words of the beggar in uh, John chapter 9. The man born blind, remember after he's healed and the Pharisees are all aflutter, he says to them, John 9, 32, since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. So their condition was a hopeless condition. And it was a helpless condition. What job could they get at that time? What use was there for a person who couldn't see? And so we find them as we usually would find the blind in Jesus' day, begging. The only employment that they could have sitting on the side of the road, in this case, sitting on the side of a road of pilgrims heading towards uh, Jerusalem, hopefully in a festive, generous uh, frame of mind, uh, begging, dependent on the kindness of others. There's a spiritual lesson for us here, isn't there? I mean, there is a worse thing than being blind in your eyes, and Scripture talks about the blindness of the heart. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 speaks of this blindness, which is endemic to our race, a blindness with which all are born, a blindness for which there is no hope in the cures of man. 2 Corinthians 4.3, Paul says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And then again in Ephesians 4.18, speaking of Gentiles, which, hello, that's most or all of us right here, Paul says that we are darkened in their mind. He says, darkened in their mind, 
What a darkness is that if there's no light over the soul and the intellect. Darkened in their mind, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of the heart. Yes, so we look as blind people at blind people, and we want to learn what the Lord did for them. So they are blind, and secondly, letter B, they are sidelined. I mean literally, (laughs) but metaphorically as well. They are sidelined, verses 30, parts B and C. In, In 30B, we see the usual sadness, as Matthew says, that they were sitting alongside the way. Well, you see, that's where people like this belong. They're not workers. They're not rulers. They're not important. In fact, they have no use. Uh, Their only function is to sit and beg for kindness from those who do work and are of significance and have something to give. Think of how isolating blindness is, socially as well as personally. Have you ever thought about that as you've walked in your room or your office or your house? Have you ever thought if not think now, of what it would be like just suddenly to be blind. Think now. You look around you, you see all these people with you. I see all you good folks here. I know I'm not alone. But imagine that suddenly the lights were turned out for you and you couldn't see a thing. What would your universe be? It'd just be you. It'd just be you. Unless you heard something or felt something, you wouldn't know anything about the world around you. Is there anything more isolating than blindness. Maybe there are some competitors and some equals, but that shut them off, and that shut them off not only in their own hearts, but it shut them off from society. What's their society? Each other. That's all they've got. They've got the two of them there. One of them was named Bartimaeus, uh, Matthew, uh, Mark tells us, but uh, they just have the two of them, just each other, helping themselves make their way along in a world they can't see. So this happy, festive crowd is going by them, and they can hear them, but they're not part of it. They're not part of the crowd. In fact, they're not part of that set, that layer, that portion of society at all. They're on the side of society begging. So they sit here, and their greatest hope in life is that someone with eyes will notice them, and that those eyes will be connected to a heart, and that heart will have compassion, and that, compa- and that compassionate heart will be furnished with a wallet, and that from that wallet will come some help that they can't do for themselves. It's not that they're not willing to work, they're just not able to work. So they are blind and they're sidelined, and there's the usual sadness Matthew touches on. They're sitting alongside the way, But now we see an unusual sparkle in verse 30c, an unusual sparkle. That is, in their darkness, there is an unexpected hope. There's an unexpected opportunity. There, perhaps for the first time in their lives, there glimmers a maybe, a maybe passing them by because they hear Jesus is passing by. So first, what they heard, letter A, what they heard. What did they hear? They heard Jesus is passing by. They made inquiry. They asked. There was a crowd, but there was an unusual stir. What is that? What's going on? Jesus is passing by. Now, obviously, they knew, they attached something to that name. Uh, They didn't merely 
know that a crowd was going by. They did know that, but there's nothing unusual in that. They weren't even told just generally, well, a great man is passing by. But they learned that Jesus is passing by. And that name meant something to them, as we will see. That name meant something to them. In fact, the other Gospels, Mark and Luke, add Jesus the Nazarene to be specific. That's who's passing by. Jesus the Nazarene. So, Matthew tells us what they heard, but he shows us what they believed. There's two ways of telling, you know. There's a direct description. Matthew does that for what they heard. And then there's just a a, a display, a way of displaying. And rather than telling us, well, they thought this and they believed that, Matthew shows us what they believed as he tells us that they cried out saying, Show us mercy, Lord, Son of David. Well, what did they believe? First, they believed that he was Lord. They call him Lord three times, Matthew's favorite number. They call him Lord three times. Now, this word kyrios can mean just sir, but here it's said three times, and it's coupled with the messianic title son of David, which we'll discuss in just a second. So I don't think it just means sir in their lips. I think it means Lord, and I think that's the right translation Uh, So they could well, and they knew who Jesus of Nazareth was, they could well have heard any number of tales, couldn't they, that show that he's Lord. We've seen them as we've studied through the Gospel of Matthew. That this is one who could stop a, not just stop a storm with a wind, uh, sorry, not just stop a storm with a word, but actually stop water from surging with a word. One who could send demons scampering. One who could raise the dead and open the eyes of the blind. This one indeed was Lord, and what they'd heard showed them that he was Lord. So they call him son of David. They ask for the divine quality of mercy. They know that he's Lord. And secondly, Matthew shows us they believe that he was the son of David. They call him this two times. Now maybe we're tempted to read past that. We mustn't. It's very, very significant to Matthew. Turn to the first verse of the first chapter of this book. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. And what do we read there? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. There it is, the son of David. And what does the genealogy that follows show about Jesus? It shows that he's son of David, son of Abraham. Son of David is a big thing to Matthew. It's a bigger thing to him than to anyone else. How many times does Mark use the phrase? Three times. How many times does Luke use the phrase? Three times. How many times does the great Jewish teacher Paul use the phrase? One time. How many times does Matthew use the phrase? Ten times. So you see, it's a big deal to him, and it's a big deal to him in this section. In the first uh, 15 chapters of the gospel, it's only used four times, but it's used six times in just these three chapters, chapter 20, 21, 22, as he does what? Enters Jerusalem, which is what? The city of the great king, the capital the place from which the son of David, the Messiah, will rule the world. 
And so now, son of David is going to occur over and over. And we find it in the lips of these two blind men. So another thing to notice, by the way, uh, 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 about how Matthew uses this phrase is we find it on the lips of nobodies. It's not the rulers and the, the people who should know better who use the phrase. We find it on the lips of peasants. We find it on the lips of blind people. We find it on the lips of the Canaanite woman in chapter 15. Just like them, she calls him son of David and pleads for mercy. We find it in the next chapter on the lips of the children running around the temple yards. Nobody's, nobody's see Jesus as the son of David. Who doesn't call him the son of David? The leaders, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, they do not. Nobodies call him. These two nobodies call him son of David. So Matthew is stressing the son of David is coming to Jerusalem, his capital, his city. And the first two to recognize him as son of David are who? Who does Matthew say are the first to recognize that he's son of David? Nobodies. Nobodies. You wouldn't notice them sitting on the side of the road. In fact, you'd advert your eyes so as not to see them, but they see him. They see who he is. So why is this? That's a big thing to Matthew, and I've showed you why it's a big thing to Matthew. Why was it a big thing to them? Why do they call him son of David twice? What is, that a, what, what is that an indicator of? Well, let's look at a, a book that tells us what it means to be or what it would mean, will mean to be the son of David, the book of the prophet Isaiah. Now, already we've had Old Testament prophecy pointing to the line of David as being the line of Messiah. But I'll just remind you of the first two, and then I'll take you to some. So open your, open your Bibles to Isaiah. I'll tell you where in a second. But you'll remember the first two, I trust. Isaiah chapter 7, the prophet addresses the house of David and tells it that a virgin would conceive, bear a son, and his name would be called Emmanuel. And then we read more of that son that the house of David must eye in chapter 9, what we'll be hearing over and over in the next few months, uh, that unto, for unto us a, a child is born, unto us a son is given, and... The, uh, his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The government will rest on his shoulders. There will be no end of increase of his government or of peace. Where will he rule? On the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. So the Messiah would be the son of David and he would be God incarnate. And what would mark him and his rule and his kingdom? Now this is where I want you to look. Look at Isaiah 29:18 with me. These are gonna be fairly near each other, so easy to find. I want each of you please to have your Bibles open, take a look, point your functional eyeballs, thanking God for the fact that we can all see. <laughs> Point them at uh, Isaiah chapter nine, 29 and 18. And what do we read about the kingdom, this kingdom? We read, on that day, the deaf will hear the words of a book, and out of darkness and thick darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. Now that's a mark of the kingdom of this son of David. Another mark, just close by chapter 35 and verse 5. Now again, this is a chapter that's very much about the kingdom of the son of David, very much about the kingdom of God, uh, the wilderness reviving and sprouting. And verse 4, your God will come, he will save you. And then what do we read in verse 5? 
Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. <laughs> if you like Handel's Messiah, you want to say unstopped. <laughs> the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, and the lame shall leap like an harp. So this is, again, a mark of the kingdom of the son of David. The blind will be made to see. But ah, here's a real kicker. Turn to chapter 42. This one is just loaded with significance. This is the first of what are called the servant songs. Isaiah has a number of sections where he talks about the servant of Yahweh, and the servant of Yahweh is the Messiah. This is the first one of these songs, and Jesus quotes from them and and applies them to himself. Now look at Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul is well pleased. I've put my spirit upon him. Yes, that's the Lord Jesus. He's called a servant. And what is his ministry? Look down at verse 7 to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon. Now look, that's pretty significant all by itself, isn't it? But what did we read in the verse just before this section? Where did this section start? Verse 29. What do we read in verse 28? For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He's the servant of the Lord. And these two men call on him, son of David, servant of the Lord, who in his kingdom will open the eyes of the blind. So it's not for nothing that Matthew tells us that they called on him as son of David and pled for mercy from him as son of David, the one who could open the eyes of the blind. So we've seen what they believe Now let's consider what they did. What did they do? They cried out, saying, Show us mercy, Lord, Son of David. So believing that he's Lord, Son of David, and believing that he's passing them right by, and if they don't stop him, will continue passing, and there goes their chance forever, possibly, they cry out, which is to say, brace yourselves, they yell. They don't just say piously, Oh, have mercy on thou." wouldn't thouest have mercy on us, O Lord? No, they yell out, Show us mercy, Lord, son of David. They don't know how far away it is. So they raise their voices so he'll hear them. Because their, their goal is not to make a pious gesture, but to be heard and to be shown mercy by the son of David. They weren't quiet. They didn't just sit hoping for a bit of good luck. That a bit of good luck would they come their way. And they weren't proud They weren't too proud to beg. They weren't too proud to be seen begging Jesus for mercy loudly, publicly. They didn't care who saw it as long as Jesus heard it. So they cry out. Now, what are the lessons for us from this? I count three. I'm sure there are more, but I count three. First, first lesson, faith faith often comes to the simple instead of the elite. Faith often comes to the simple instead of the elite. These simple rustics simply believe the word of God. And they simply believe Jesus. Think of the contrast between Mary and Zacchaeus. The Lord comes to old, uh, the angel of the Lord, Gabriel, comes to old Zacchaeus, tells him his infertile old wife is about to have a baby, and he doesn't believe it. All his years of education and training, priest that he is, he doesn't believe. Angel goes to this simple, rustic teenage girl, absolute nobody, 
named Mary, just a godly girl who obviously knew her Bible, and tells her, and what does she do? She believes, she submits, she calls herself the handmaiden of the Lord. Yes, you know, often the baleful effect of education is simply to instruct one in more sophisticated ways to disbelieve and to tangle things up and ways to doubt and make it sound uh, intellectual. But they had been spared this blessing. They'd been spared the blessing of blinding education. Uh, What their eyes didn't see, their minds did. And they believed. The trained leaders of Jerusalem (laughs) in the next chapter will be stone blind to what they see with their eyeballs. Uh, Never having seen a single miracle, the two blind men already believe in Jesus. But in the face of an avalanche of miracles, the leaders of Israel will not believe Jesus. So yes, faith often comes to to the simple instead of to the elite. The first will be last. Secondly, faith came to them the same way it comes to us. Now, people often foolishly think, well, if I lived in the, Je- in the days of Jesus, I would believe, but you can't expect me to believe now. Well, these guys are just like us, aren't they? They had never laid eyes on a miracle. They had never seen a single miracle of Jesus. They'd never set eyes on Jesus. <laughs> they only heard of his wonderful works from reliable witnesses. They'd only heard of his teachings in person Secondhand, from witnesses, just as you and I do. And faith came to them the same way it comes to us, which is how Romans 10 lays it out. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Not faith comes by seeing miracles. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Faith came to them the same way it does to us. You've never seen a miracle? Neither had they. You never put your eyes on Jesus? Neither had they. Have you heard of Jesus, though, from the words that are reliable? Oh, yes, you have. You've heard from the very word of God. Faith comes to us the same way it came to them, but it often comes to the simple instead of the self-impressed elite third lesson, they put themselves in the way of blessing. They put themselves in the way of blessing. Think if they had been somewhere else, or if they'd not asked who it was who was passing by, and they would have missed their opportunity. But they put themselves in the right place, in the providence of God, where Jesus, in fact, did pass by, and they were there when he did, and they could call on him for mercy, and, spoiler alert, they received mercy from him. So let me ask you a question. If you were in great need, and you knew where Jesus would be passing by, wouldn't you put yourself there? Let me ask you another question. Aren't you in great need? Don't you know where Jesus passes by? Where does Jesus pass by? He passes by in the Word of God. 
This is where we find him. This is where God has revealed him. This is where we learn of the Lord Jesus Christ, more reliable than hearing a voice in the Mount of Transfiguration. We have this prophetic word. And you find Jesus at the throne of grace in prayer. We just heard that in a sermon a couple of weeks ago. Hebrews 4.16. That a believer in Christ comes boldly to the throne of grace and finds grace and obtains mercy and finds grace to help in time of need. That's where Jesus passes by. And where else does he pass by? Well, you tell me, when John sees a vision of Jesus, where does he see Jesus in chapter 1? hanging out with his churches, his local churches. He's standing amid seven golden lampstands, and each of those represents a literal, contemporary, local church of that day. Well, that's where you find Jesus. I know that's where Jesus' heart is. Why do I know that that's where Jesus' heart is? Because I'm a prophet and I have special knowledge? No, I've just read the Bible, and I've just noticed that the whole Old Testament is is addressed to local churches. And every letter is either addressed to a local church or the pastor of a local church. And all of the things Jesus tells us to do, he tells us to do in the context of membership in a local church. It's all one another, one another, one another. Yes, the first, the first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart. But when we do that, what does he tell us to do? To love our neighbor as ourselves. And this is what he calls us to do. So do we do that? Do we put ourselves where he is and regularly, doggedly, earnestly seek him where we know Jesus is passing by in the word of God, at the throne of grace, in the assembly of his people. That's where Jesus passes by. And we in our great need should seek him there, should put ourselves there. That's the place of blessing. That's where Jesus is. So three important lessons from these men, and we're not, we're not finished learning from them. They were blind, they were sidelined, but thirdly, they were maligned. That's not a word you use, it's spelled M-A-L-I-G-N. Maligned, they were maligned, M-A-L-I-G-N-E-D. Verse 31, but the crowd rebuked them, saying that they should be silent. In other words, what were they doing? They were saying, shut up, shut up. Shut up, we're trying to listen to Jesus. Stop bothering this important man. Be quiet, go back where you belong on the side. Get out of our way. Very important here, very important person following through and us following him. Shut up. Now, the 12 apostles had shown this same attitude, hadn't they? I'm kind of, you know, it's kind of nice that they aren't leading here. But back in chapter 15, the Canaanite woman is coming behind Jesus, crying out over and over, have mercy on me, son of David. And and what do they do? They say, send her away to Jesus. They want her gone. And then again, not having learned anything from that, what did we see in chapter 19? Some people are bringing children for Jesus to bless. And what do they do? Let me show you right in. No, no. They say, take those things away. Take those small, smelly, troublesome things away from this important man we follow. And what did Jesus do? He rebuked them and told them not to do that, but to let them come to him. Well, I can hope that maybe for one time they learned their lesson, and they weren't among those telling the blind people to shut up, but the crowd sure did. The crowd sure did. Why? Well, because it wasn't their problem. They were blind. The crowd wasn't blind. That They needed to see to their own problems. They had physical sight. So they have attached themselves to an important person, 
And so here these people on the fringe shouting and hollering and making a ruckus to nobodies, to persistent non-persons, insignificant inconveniences. They just really need to shut up. Their problem is their problem. And so there's no compassion in their hearts. And they certainly won't be showing them any mercy. They, they saw no need to. Now, what are the lessons for us here? Well, one lesson, and anyone who's been a Christian for a very long time probably has learned this one. Formal followers of the Lord Jesus can be the most discouraging to earnest seekers of the Lord Jesus. The greatest enemies to true religion are formal religionists. Those whose religion it, it, it consists in form and outwardness and checking a few proper doctrinal boxes and checking a few uh, practical boxes of formal religion. But when they meet somebody who really has a heart aflame to know the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, they're threatened, they're bothered, maybe convicted, and they can be the most discouraging because they're the most eager to pour, to pour water on that flickering flame because it bothers them, it troubles them. It is a shame perhaps to them. It's a, a conviction to them. But nonetheless, given that you see uh, how these formal followers try to discourage and shut up these two genuine believers, well, genuine faith, when you couple it with deep need, is not going to be denied. They don't hear the first shut up and say to each other, well, we tried, and then go back and sit down, blind for the rest of their lives. No, they want Jesus to hear them. They want to get mercy from the son of David. They're not going to be stopped. This is not the first time they've been mistreated. They're not going to be stopped by it now. And this is the characteristic of true faith. True faith, if anything, will thrive in an unfriendly family or an unfriendly workplace or an unfriendly environment. All the more, the more the world pushes, the more the tree's roots go down in the soil and brace for further winds. And so it is with them. They really need and they really believe and they're not going to be stopped or shut up. They continue. Whatever the obstacle then is the lesson to us, a genuine hungry believer will move forward, will push himself forward. And so they do. So we've seen two sightless men. Now let us see one servant king in verses 32 and 34. One servant king. And uh, let's uh, first noticing in verse 32a, Jesus stance. Jesus stance, S-T-A-N-C-E, his stance, S-T-A-N-C-E. And we simply read, and Jesus standing still. I said, do you, I don't, how are you going to see anything in those words? There's a lot in those words. And Jesus standing still. So firstly, let's simply note, well, his motion. And what is his motion? It's arrested. <laughs> he stops. But, but first, remember, where's he going? Does he know where he's going? Well, he just said where he's going, didn't he? He's going to Jerusalem. His capital city from which he should reign. Oh, but what's going to happen there? He's going to be rejected. He's going to be falsely condemned. He's going to be tortured. 
spat upon. He's going to be crucified. He's going to be buried. And he'll rise from the dead. But he knows this. He's going to bear the sins of all God's elect on his shoulders. He's going to suffer the wrath of God for them. In doing this, he's going to fulfill many, many prophecies. It, it is not too much to say that the entire plan of God for the ages hinges on what he's about to do. And he's marching forward to that. And he stops because two blind guys call him. He stops dead and sets that down for a second and turns his attention to them. What a Savior. What does that tell you about Jesus? He stops dead because he hears them. He's arrested by the calls of the helpless, hopeless, blind. It stops him dead. And uh, Spurgeon very wonderfully says, believing cries can hold the Son of God by the feet. Believing cries can hold the Son of God by the feet. He stops hearing these cries of faith for mercy. So, he just said he came not to be served, but to serve. He's still that servant. His great and greatest act of service will be his death on the cross for God's people. But he's already serving. He's been serving. He's still serving. He stops to serve. So, consider his motion, and secondly, consider his vision V-I-S-I-O-N, his vision. Now, there's a great irony here. There are many ironies here, but the, the blind men don't see Jesus the way the rulers will see him. They don't see him with physical eyes, and they don't see him in the way that they will see him with the eyes of their heart either. They will see him as a fake, a phony, a fraud, but the blind men see him for who he is. They see him for the Son of David, the Messiah of God. Jesus does not see the blind men the way the crowd sees them. How does the crowd, what's the, what's the majority opinion? Polling here, CNN polls the crowd. And what does 99%, 99.9% of the people say? They say these two are not worth stopping for. They're not worth trouble, time, or attention. And yet Jesus sees them. He doesn't see them the way the crowd sees them. Each sees the truth about the other, and the elites in the crowd misses the truth about the other. So that's the irony. Let's consider the reality. We've said they're blind. Yes, they are, but they see Jesus, don't they? Their eyes are blind, but in their hearts, in their minds, they see who he is to some degree, clearly. They see who he is. They're sidelined, but Jesus hears them. The crowd doesn't want to, but Jesus hears them. They're blind, but they see Jesus. They're sidelined, but Jesus sees, hears them. And they're maligned, dismissed as insignificant, but Jesus cares for them. And he will show them mercy, and he will show them compassion. So the vision is very different. We've seen Jesus' stance. Now let's look at Jesus' heart in verses 32b through 34a. And we're faced in seeing Jesus' heart, first with his call in verse 32b, he stood still and he summoned them. Now, put yourself in their worn, beaten, secondhand, cast-off sandals for a moment. You're in complete darkness and blindness. 
And as you're crying out for Jesus, what do you hear? All you hear is a a mass. You hear a buzz. You hear a beehive of angry, contemptuous, dismissive voices telling you to shut up and get out of the way. And suddenly, above all that buzz, one voice rings out. And they all shut up. In fact, he may have hushed them so that he could hear them and they could hear him. One voice rings out, it's Jesus. And he says, come over here. The great crowd says, go away and shut up. Jesus says, come over here. Well, what a day is that for them. They hear this one voice. We're not even told that they came. Do you think they came? We didn't need to be told, did we? Of course they come. He calls, they come. This is a picture of election and effectual call as well. They hear their shepherd's voice, they come. So this shows us that their pleas were heartfelt. Calling out for Jesus, they meant it. Action always reveals reality. You know, what people say is often very different from what people do. And when what people do tells you what they really are, we'll believe that over the tongue. And so in this case, the feet followed the tongue. The tongue called out for Jesus, and at his invitation, the feet followed. They came over well. I mean, there are a great many people today, aren't there, who say, oh, yes, they want to know the truth. Oh, yes, they want to know God, but they won't lift a pinky to do something about it, to go and hear, to find out and think, to pursue and chase down. Well, not these guys. What they cried out is what they indeed did want. And then Jesus calls one time and they come over. And Spurgeon sadly reflects how many people have heard the call of mercy dozens of times, hundreds of times, and yet have not come. But they were seeking Jesus and they heard his call and they came. His call, secondly, his question, verses 32c and 33, he summoned them and said, what do you wish that I should do for you? (laughs) Well, it seems like a silly question, but it's actually a very good question. All of their lives as as blind beggars, what what had they wanted? What had they been wanting people to do for them? Do Do you think that they asked anybody to open their eyes? Well, nobody had that ability. What did they ask everybody for? Money, food, some kind of material help. It wasn't a dumb question. It was a good question. It was also a really good question because it would really reveal what they thought of him. Would they ask him something low that anyone else could have done? Or would they ask him something that showed that they really believed that he was the son of David, able to do what nobody else could do? So yes, it was a very good question. And their answer is very instructive. They say to him, Lord, that our eyes should be opened. Now, when you read this, preparing for today, what do you wish that I should do for you? Did, you, did, you? did that sound familiar? Just a little earlier in the chapter. And in fact, we read it earlier, didn't we? It should have sounded familiar. We just read it a, a bit ago. The mother of the sons of Zebedee come up, and what does Jesus say to her? What do you wish I should do for you? Same question. But in that case, they are blind and ask for something they don't need. They asked to be leaders in the kingdom of God, not even really understanding what's going on. But in this case, these men are physically blind, but not spiritually, and they ask for what they really do need. 
And in the first case, Jesus does not give what they ask for. But in this case, Jesus does give what they ask for. They don't ask for money. They ask for something that only he, only the son of David can do. That our eyes be opened. (laughs) Do you read something like this and you think, wow, to be that person. To be somebody who Jesus came up and, and said, what do you wish I would do for you? If somebody, if Jesus were to ask you that, what do you wish that I do for you? What would you ask him for? Well, doesn't he ask you that? What did we study just a couple of Sundays ago? Again, I take you back to Hebrews 4. What is that throne of grace there for? It's purchased by the blood of Jesus. The way is open for you, Christian brother, Christian sister, by the flesh of Jesus, by Jesus giving himself for you. He opened a way into the Holy of Holies, and now he bids you come. What does that verse say? Let us keep coming boldly to the throne of grace, that we may find mercy and obtain, uh, obtain mercy and find grace, receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is God's open hand of invitation to come and to ask. So doesn't he invite you to tell him? So tell him. So ask. Say to him, Lord, I would that you give me a heart of love for you. I, I would that you light in my cold, hard heart, a flame of love and passion for you, that you give me a deeper knowledge of you, that you give me a life fruitful to your glory, that you help me hate sin like you hate sin and love your ways as you love your ways, that you will make me righteous and holy in a way that pleases you. Lord, do that in my heart. And Lord, bring my son back. Bring my daughter back. Lord, save my husband. Save my wife. Lord, bless my church. Give us a more effective outreach with your word. Help us to take the gospel to the dark, unbelieving community you've put us in. He asks you, what do you want me to do for you? Tell him. But tell him like these men. Tell him from faith and from a deep need and insist on being heard. You've got an invitation. You've been called. Yes, indeed. So now we see number three, his emotion. Verse 34, they've told him what they want and moved with compassion, Jesus. Now, the Greek text puts that participle up front. That's the first word, moved with compassion. Moved with compassion. That's the first thing Matthew says, Jesus did this. Now, this is the single emotion that is most frequently attributed to Jesus. He's said to be angry. He's said to rejoice. And the whole uh, gamut of emotions are attributed to Jesus. But the one you most frequently read about is compassion. That's characteristic of Jesus. Now, for him, his, his glory and his majesty, his great divine person, did not make him a distant, remote, uncaring thing. For Jesus, who he was meant that his, every time he saw human misery, his great heart was stirred with compassion. His, his great inner feelings overflowed with warmth and care, and he showed that in what he did. What, what a king to have. What a, was there ever a better king? Not even close. Uh, 
That's the measure of the person of Jesus. And then third and finally, we see Jesus' power in verse 34, uh, parts B and C. And moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they saw again, and they followed him. Now, I'm sure every one of you knows what it's like to be moved with compassion, but there's nothing you can do. Your, your wife, your child is suffering, whether emotionally or physically or financially, or just lost, and you would do anything to help. You would do anything to change the situation, but you don't, you don't have the power. It just is not in your ability. This is never the case with Jesus. Jesus has the compassion and he has the power. He's moved with compassion, and I'm sure he's not the first one ever to feel compassion for them, but he's the first one ever to feel compassion for them and be able to open their eyes. And that's what he does. He, 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 he calls them, he actually touches their eyes. He, the creator of the eye actually touches their eyes and he gives them life. So we say absolute power does what? corrupts absolutely. And that's true when absolute power is possessed by a corrupt heart. But here we have absolute power in a perfect heart. We have absolute power in the heart of God. And so power coupled with compassion and bestowed mercy on these two hopeless, helpless, needy men. And their eyes are opened and they follow him. So as, as we uh, sum this up, Matthew would ask us, what kind of a follower are you? I remind you, this was his inclusio. This was how he bracketed uh, this section. Are, are you a person who follows in his company only? Verse 29, and while they were going out from Jericho, a great crowd followed him. Well, these were a large crowd. And ironically, by the way, these same people who were telling the blind men to shut up for calling Jesus son of David, this same people are going to be calling him son of David as they enter Jerusalem. But that's a bit of an aside. They are following Jesus. They're in his company. But they look at these blind men dismissively. They, they have nothing to do. They want nothing to do with him. So they're in Jesus' company, but they have nothing of Jesus' heart. They, they, they like being with him in a certain way, but they don't care to be like him in every way. And doesn't that describe a great many churchgoers and formalists who like saying, Lord, Lord, but he never knew them? Aren't there many people who like going to church? And they like hearing a good Bible sermon. They like hearing about Jesus. They like having their already, already arrived at conclusions affirmed by a good sermon. But boy, um, join the church so that you actually get to know these people and know what their needs are and uh, maybe are troubled enough to be put close enough to do something about it. Commit yourself to this group that Jesus has created. Um, actually know, learn the names, learn the cares, get involved in the lives. Oh, no, this is not what I go to church for. I go to church to hear a sermon. That's all I care about. I, I like being in the company of Jesus. I don't actually want to be like Jesus. I don't actually want to follow, you know, Jesus. Are we followers in his company only, or are we followers in his spirit also? You can bet 
verse 34, their eyes are opened and they follow him. Now you can bet that they followed him in genuine faith. You can bet that they grew in their faith as they followed him. They saw who Jesus was. They revered him. They needed him. Nothing kept them from him. Nothing could discourage them from coming to him. And as soon as their eyes had any vision, they trained that vision on Jesus and had no intention of letting him out of their sight because they wanted to be like him and with him. So you ask, well, why do you prod us about these things? Well, because this is my job. This is why God put me here. That's why God puts any pastor where he is. I want you to take the next step. If you're not a believer, I want you to throw yourself on the mercy of Jesus. There is nothing more that I want for you than that if you're not a believer. But if you are a believer, I want you to take the next step from wherever you are. I want you to take the next step. Are you not even a member of the church? Well, join the church. Are you a member of the church? What ministries are you doing? Well, find a ministry. Uh, do you know the names of the people? Well, learn one before you go home. Do you know what people need? Sitting within five, ten feet of you? Have a conversation. That's what I'm here for, to say, take the next step. As I regularly say to myself and am said to, take the next step. It's about growing and it's about following Jesus. Following Jesus is never a stationary thing. It's a path of growth. So much so that the writer to the Hebrews, looking at a group of people who aren't growing, tells them, I'm worried that you haven't really taken the word to heart at all. Because you should be way ahead of where you are and you show no signs of growth, he says. So yeah, growth is an imperative for all of us. So we might well pray. As Jesus says, what, you, what would you have me to do for you? We might pray, well, God, open my eyes so that I might see what they saw and follow as they followed. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this brilliant revelation of the, of the person of our Lord Jesus. And oh, what a person he, he is. And we remind ourselves Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That same Jesus who looked with compassion at these two nobodies is the Jesus we know. And the Jesus who wants us to look with compassion on the on the fellow nobodies around us, as Paul reminds us that we're all pretty much nobodies as a rule, so that the glory might be of God alone. Well, we rejoice in that. We're very happy to be the Lord's nobodies. It's a wonderful thing to be Jesus's nobodies and that he be our somebody. So we pray indeed that you will help our love for him to grow, our service for him to be more and more fruitful, and that you will be glorified in us and through us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.